spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, 
nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you today for allowing us an opportunity to come together to celebrate this Easter Sunday. We thank you for dying for our sins. As your word says, you died for our, uh, um, in our place for our sins. But it also goes on to say that you were raised for our justification. Because you got up from the dead, we can be declared righteous in your sight. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to work this thing into our hearts and minds, this idea of being justified, being not guilty in your sight, not in the future, but right now. Help us to see that because of your death, burial, and resurrection, we can have the assurance of our future home with you, not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, but all because of your mercy. We thank you now for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On August the 23rd, 2020, police were called to a residence in Kenosha, Wisconsin for a domestic incident. A young woman called the police and stated that her boyfriend had taken her car keys and would not give them back. The dispatchers notified the officers that the young woman's boyfriend was Jacob Blake, who was not supposed to be at this house, and that he had a warrant based on charges of third-degree sexual assault, trespassing, and disorderly conduct for domestic abuse on the same woman that had made this call, but the charges were from May. Although the facts are still disputed, when officers arrived, Jacob Blake was tasered twice and then shot four times, leaving him paralyzed. Protests ensued. A former Kenosha alderman made a Facebook request for people to take up arms and to protect their city. A 17-year-old boy named Kyle Rittenhouse answered that call. On August the 25th, armed with a semi-automatic AR-15, Kyle Rittinghouse patrolled the streets of Kenosha to render medical aid and to protect businesses. Before that night was over, Kyle Rittinghouse would shoot and kill two people, Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, and he would wound another man, Gage Grosskraut. On November the 1st, 2021, Kyle Rittinghouse's case went to trial. He had six charges filed against him. The judge in the case dismissed two of those counts, citing a lack of evidence by prosecution. And on one account, um, he dismissed, stating that it did not apply based on state law. After four days of deliberations, the jury returned a not guilty sentence on all counts for Kyle Rittinghouse. Now, Everybody has an opinion about this case. If you are on the left, you feel that this was a miscarriage of justice and proof of bias in the ju uh, judicial system. If you are on the right, you are excited about the outcome of this case because you believe that this is a win for the Second Amendment. 
regardless of anyone's opinion, whether you're on the right or on the left, regardless of how you feel about the case, whether you think he's guilty or whether you think he's innocent, now there is therefore now no condemnation for Kyle Rittinghouse. And because we have a system where you cannot be tried again, right, there's no double, de double jeopardy, there is no way Kyle Rittinghouse can ever be tried again for his actions on August the 25th, 2020. He is not guilty. And again, as I said, he will never be punished for his actions on August 25th, 2020. And there is nothing that any of us can say or do about it. He is not guilty. In other words, he has been legally declared justified in his case. Now, you may be asking yourself, what the heck does this have to do with Romans chapter 8 <laughs> or Easter Sunday? Okay. I want you to see that it has everything to do with the scripture reference we just read. It has everything to do with Romans chapter 8, and it has everything to do specifically with Easter. But I want to start by giving us a survey of Romans chapter 8 up until this point. Okay, So I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. So we can see how this applies. Romans chapter 1. I'll quickly uh, go through these things. A lot of this is, is, is very familiar. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 18 down to verse 20. Listen to what Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, notice what Paul says in this text. He begins to say that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness. This wrath of God has been pictured as all of us are familiar with what happened in, uh, uh, in August of 1995. Some of us, some of y'all were like, I wasn't even alive in 95. <laughs> okay. But many of us remember scenes of watching the dam break in Louisiana. 2005, 2005, I'm off by 10 years. I am, I should just read, I should just read stuff off my notes, right? <laughs> but 
we all know that, that the storm had, had come, and they said that, that this, this, this dam can withstand a Category 3 storm. But it was not built to hold a Category 5 storm. And so when, when, the, when the hurricane comes through, it was not able to hold back the storm because it wasn't strong enough. And so it broke, and everybody was in danger. Paul is saying the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, God is in his grace and in his mercy. He is restraining his own wrath to give everyone time to repent. But the wrath of God is being revealed and it's going to be poured out on everyone who is unrighteous. Now, Paul goes on to say that that the reason that people are at fault here is not because they don't know. Right. I love the title of this book that I, um, that I, that I, um, that I read a couple years ago is called God Does Not Believe in Atheists. I'm not sure if there is a God. Paul says no one is in that category. God, he says, has revealed himself to everyone so that his attributes are clearly seen. We can look up in the sky and know there is a God. And he says because of this general revelation, Everyone is without an excuse. God's wrath is going to be poured out on everyone that is unrighteous. Paul says that the reason that this wrath is being poured out, again, not because people don't know, he says that this is because we as human beings, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I love how my uh, seminary professor described this word, suppress. Uh, the idea behind this Greek word is, as he says, is to take something, to put it in a box, put the lid on it, and then hold the lid down with your foot so that it can't get out. It is not that people don't know the truth. It is that they suppress the truth so that we can live as if it is not true. And because of that, no one will stand before God and say they don't know. We are all without excuse. I want us to look in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If anyone is familiar with the Roman road, I'm just going to walk down these handful of scriptures. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. This is what Paul's, how Paul sums up the human condition. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Right, Talking to the first couple of chapters, he's writing to Jews. We, you may feel that you're better than, than Gentiles or people who do not have your religious pedigree. But he goes on to say, bless you. He says, you, n- no one is better than anyone else. We're all in the same boat. What then are we better than? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, 
There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they practice deceit. The the poison of serpents is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing. Oh, Lord. And bitterness. (laughs) Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says is said to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the flesh, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now notice what Paul says in this text here. Paul here is describing the human condition. Paul says that every single one of us, we fail in word, deeds, actions, desires, our lust, our mouths. Let's go back to my sermon on having a profane heart. (laughs) And Paul says that uh, for many of us, we believe that we can keep God's laws or keep rules and regulations in a way to please God. We believe that somehow we can do enough good deeds to overcome the evil and the sin in our lives. Paul says we should not fool ourselves. He says, by the deeds of the law, no one will be justified or declared not guilty in God's sight. Because, he says, all have sinned, past tense, and fall, right? In Greek, this is in the present tense. It's talking about an ongoing condition. We have sinned, and we continue to fall short of God's standards. And this quote, I can't remember who made this quote. This is not on my notes. Seth gave me this, this quote. He know who said it. I just can't keep remembering. He'd give it to me every time. Right? Was it Spurgeon? One of them said Bunyan. John Bunyan. There you go. He says, there is enough sin in our best deeds to damn us to hell. He goes on to say, there is enough sin in my best prayer to damn me to hell. You know what we try to do? We say, well, I'm I'm giving money to help the poor. I'm giving the money to do this. I'm helping the little old lady across the street. And you don't realize that every single action you make is tainted by sin. 
So how many good deeds do I need to do in order to get into heaven? The answer is none. It can't be done. Because every time you try to do something to work your way to God, even that is tainted with sin. Romans chapter 6 tells us what our sentence is. Romans chapter 6, we think that God should just overlook our shortcomings and our failures. God should just somehow let us off the hook. But just like Kyle Rittinghouse, there must be a sentence on our sin. And Paul tells us what the sentence is. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we all know this verse. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know we are now talking about uh, minimum wage in our country and what should be a sufficient minimum wage? And so we have centered on $15 being the appropriate amount of money to pay someone for minimum wage because we feel that people have worth and dignity, so if they work, they should be paid a decent wage. You know God has that same idea? God wants to give you what you are worth. He's going to pay you back. And here, the text says, the wages, your paycheck for sin is death. Our sin incurs the death penalty because sin is an attack on God. It is a coup attempt to move God off of his throne and to put ourselves in his place. And just like attacking any king, or even the president for that matter, right, you can be charged with a capital offense. The wages of sin is death. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 15. I want you to go back to Romans chapter 1. This is the last passage before we jump back into, uh, into Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 1. Yep, Romans chapter 1. The whole point of this book of Romans is Paul is laying out his whole theology of salvation, right, from, from start to finish, right? Uh, he, he, this is his systematic theology, so to speak, on salvation. Now, we believe that if we are in some way found guilty, we should be able to work our sentence off work our way back to God, do something to please God. But, but Paul has already told us there is nothing that you can do in order to please God. You're under a death penalty, and the only thing God will accept is death. But God also knows there's no way for you to ever get to him if he does not provide the payment. Paul says here in chapter 1, verse 16, verse 15, he says, So as much as is in me, 
I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, notice what Paul says here. Paul is saying that the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus is good news because through faith in Jesus, God freely declares us not guilty. The events of Good Friday through Easter Sunday is good news because through the message of the gospel, God gives us what we cannot work for. Now, let me give you this example. It's funny. It's about me. Okay. Now, this is how life is. This is how we want salvation to be. We want salvation to be like sports. Okay. Now, we can imagine salvation being like standing in line shooting free throws. And, and if you hit enough free throws, you can get into heaven. Okay. Now, of course, we know LeBron James is going to heaven, <laughs> right? Right. It's, it's just people who have natural ability that is going to get into heaven. And then you have me. Now, when I was in high school at Poly, I was always the last person picked because when we would shoot the free throws. Right. It, I think my arm is like crooked is bent to something is like. And I'm hitting the backboard. I'm shooting over the goal. I'm hitting the rim It's bouncing out. And they're like, yeah. And you're like, give me somebody else. <laughs> but if salvation is based on our own individual ability, some people are going to have an advantage over others. Right? Some people are born into better life situations that will put them at, 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 at a greater advantage than others. Some people have less obstacles to get over in life. Some people have grown up in situations where just the, just the weight of all of the generational issues would preclude them from getting into heaven. And God says, I'm going to level the playing field. You don't have to work to get yourself into heaven. I'm going to provide the, the, the means. And everybody has an even playing field. All you have to do is put faith in my son. And I will freely justify you or declare you not guilty. That's why Paul says that it is the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection itself, that is the power of God for salvation. Now, with, with all of this, in our minds, let us go back to Romans chapter 8, and we can start to see how Kyle Rittinghouse's acquittal is just a natural example of the spiritual reality that we have in Christ. Romans chapter 8. 
two things I want to touch on in this passage, and then I'm going to let you go. Romans chapter 8. What I want us to see at the beginning of this passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is that even though you are guilty, because of Jesus, you will face no penalties. Even though you are guilty, because of Jesus, you will face no penalties. Now, I don't want you to uh, get it twisted. You are guilty. Okay. <laughs> okay. You deserve to be punished. But, Paul says, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. John MacArthur says that the word condemnation here in this text occurs only three times in the New Testament, and all of them are in this book, the book of Romans. It is used exclusively in judicial settings as the opposite of justification, right? So justification means you are declared not guilty, right? So condemnation means that you are, um, that you are guilty, and with along with this guilty verdict, you will receive the penalty that this verdict demands. So when Paul says there is no condemnation for those in Christ, he means that there is no sin that you will ever be held, that will ever be held against you. Let that sink in. There is no sin that will ever be held against you. Now, we joked about, uh, about this the, the other night uh, in Bible study and on, on Friday night because uh, uh, someone asked, asked me, do you think we sin every day? And I was like, no, no, I might not be. I must not be that spiritual because uh, I, I sin every day. I sin every day. I, every time I get behind the wheel, I sin because y'all drive. So y'all some slow people. This morning I was driving, I was coming to church, and it's like the, the, the road we take is, a, is just one lane, you know, one lane in bo- both directions until I get to Bel Air Road, and I'm driving. And it's like, because Janita say something to me every time I drive, so I, I'm just, I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything, but I'm just like, inside I'm boiling. I'm like, God, why is it every single Sunday I get caught behind all the slow people? And in my head, I'm just like, in my head, I'm just like, I need to get out of my way. <laughs> I sin every day. Every time I get behind the wheel. Every time I get behind the wheel. We sin every single day, either by things we say, things we think, things we do. Think about your attitude. Think about when your wife says, oh, honey, when are you going to put the trash out? But you're watching um, SportsCenter. <laughs> women, think about when you come home, you ask that man to put together something, and it's been like two weeks, and you walk in the door, and it's still not done. What goes through your mind? <laughs> what goes through your mind? <laughs> 
Our attitudes aren't right all the time. Our desires aren't right all the time. We, th- there is so many ways that we sin and fall short of God's glory every single day. Things that we've done in the past, things that we're currently doing right now. And there are things in our futures that we don't even know that we're going to do. And yet Paul says, you won't stand trial for any of those things. Those things will never be held against you. And that's good news for me because I can think of some things I've done. I say, Lord, I just I, I just pray that God doesn't have a DVD player because I'm just like, don't don't play the, don't play the tape. Don't play the tape. You know, and if you do, just let it be a private viewing. <laughs> just, just, just be the Lord. That's just Lord. There's some things that just gotta stay between us. But the good news is there is therefore now no condemnation. You will not be held accountable to any of those things because of Christ. In God's courtroom, you are found not guilty, and you will never face the penalty for your sin. Jesus paid the penalty and was found guilty on your behalf, so you can now go free. That is the gospel. And just like how renting house, everybody has an opinion. I run into some people that I grew up with, and they'd be like, I just don't believe that you're a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> They just, they just, it just boggles their mind. <laughs> I remember I ra- look, one time I ran into one of my friends, Chris from Upward Bound, and he was just like, I just don't get it. <laughs> you know, he's like, we, we're going to now just have to call you 80 Proof Pastor. And I was like, yeah, those were some good days, <laughs> right? But Paul's point is, Regardless of anybody's opinion, no matter what people think about you, what you've done, what people know about you, and people like to come and say, do you remember when? He says, doesn't matter what they think, you are not guilty. You will never be punished for those actions. I thank God for that because between like 94 and like, you know, 2000, I'd be like, oof. I don't know. I just need to just erase those years out. (laughs) And there is nothing that anyone can say or do about it. You have legally been declared justified in Christ. Now, one thing, last thing I want to add about this particular uh, verse before I, m- before I move on about this, us being justified in Christ. Um, I, I, I like how Paul adds in the time factor. He says, you are therefore now. I mean, there is therefore now no condemnation right now. Right. 
he, he's now talking about in the future. Now, I understand that, you know, when we talk about theologically, we talk about justification. We understand that justification is something that 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 um, that will take place on the day of judgment. On judgment day, we will stand before God and he will declare those of us in Christ. He will he will give you the official declaration. You are justified, not guilty. And then we'll dance our way into the gate. Okay. But Paul is trying to help us to see justification is not just, it is a future event. It is not just something that takes place in the future. It's something that we possess right now. One of the things that I have learned over these last 40 days, you all know that, that, that I have been, uh, during Lent, right, we Christians normally will fast from something. I've been fasting from uh, from music. And I understand why we play nonstop noise in our head, in our ears, right? When you're driving, you're playing something, TV's always on. There's always some noise, right, Tr- trying to distract us from what's going on. Because these last 40 days that I've had no music to listen to, all I just do is drive and, and pray or just look at things. You know how often things from your past play over in your head? That's what we're trying to distract ourselves from. And and I just think about things. I'm just like, oh, my. I'm like, you know what, Lord? I'm sorry. I, just, I don't know what was wrong with me. I was crazy. I couldn't do one of those things like, like, like Adam did. It was like, Lord, the woman you gave me. I'm like, because I wasn't even married. You know, I could have been like, Lord, the parents you gave me. <laughs> but they did their best. <laughs> I was just rebellious. You know, I was just rebellious. But things start to play over in your mind, and, and you start to really feel like, man, I blew it. I messed up. How can God really love me or forgive me? Right? It's in those times that we have to be able to come back to these texts of scriptures and realize that, no, it does not matter what you have done. You are now not condemned. It doesn't matter what you say to yourself about yourself. You remember past things, how the devil, of course, the Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you of things. None of that matters. And that's one of the things I had to remind the person that is asking me, like, you know, how do I know for sure that I can be saved? Because, and then go give you a list of things like that. None of that matters. God says in Isaiah, I will take the things that you've done and I will throw them into a sea of forgetfulness and I will remember them against you no more. As far as the east is from the west, he says. God doesn't hold those things against you. So what we have to learn how to do is since God has let us off the hook, we need to let ourselves off the hook too. There is now no condemnation for you. Like I said Friday, that does not mean continue on in in sin. Right? Hebrews chapter 12, he still will spank every child that he loves. Okay. But there's no penalty for our sin. The second thing that I want us to look at in this text 
if you skip down to verse 28, down to 20, verse 28, everything in this text is, 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 is important, in this chapter is important. I want to just skip over everything else that is said and jump right into verse 28 down to the end. Now, what I want you to see here is Jesus' death and resurrection was the culminating event in the process God used to bring you to himself. Now, this is important. This is something that we have been, I would say, wrestling with in Bible study. Okay, And uh, we have been wrestling with this because, again, um, there's a variety of viewpoints on this idea of salvation, right? So, so uh, again, m- most of you all know that for me, as far as salvation is concerned, I am reformed, right? I take a Calvinistic view of, of salvation. I understand from the, the doctrine of election in Scripture that the people who ultimately are saved, God chose them for himself before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1. God picked out a group of people for himself before the world began, and he has been working throughout time to bring those people to himself. Okay. Now, we spend a lot of time in Bible study looking at those verses. I'm not going to take, take um, time to go over that right now. But again, if we were to go over to Romans chapters 9 through 11, we could see this idea that we all damned ourselves to hell. And if God decided to give everyone justice, which is perfectly within his right, he would send all of us to hell and go ahead about his business. But because he knows, right, well, God knows the people who would put their trust in Jesus. No, no, that's not how it works. He knows Romans chapter 3 that we just read. There is no one who seeks after God. If he left it up to our own free will, there would be no one in heaven because the truth be told, none of us want God. Even now, that's why we sin every day. That's what sin is. Sin is choosing something other than God. So what did God do? God picked for himself those that he would save. And through time, he is bringing those people to himself. This is exactly what we see here in Romans chapter 8. And this is why I said in Bible study that the doctrine of election, although it brings up hard emotions, because we'll say, well, wait a minute. Well, why didn't God pick everyone? The answer is, I'm not God. I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know why God didn't pick everyone. But he, he knew exactly how to glorify himself. And so he understands that by saving some and not saving others, that he could glorify himself. Ephesians chapter 1. He says it three times in Ephesians chapter 1. Now listen to what he says here. He says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to to his purpose. Now, what does it mean by those who are the called? And, and in Bible study, I gave this example of how Kaylin Karras, they go in the basement, and 
I don't feel like going up and down the steps when I need them to do something. So I'm like, Kaylin cares. <laughs> and usually it's Kayla answers first. You know, Karis is always going to be a slow because she's like, let me get let Kayla do the work first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, sir. I'm like, come in. Okay. And then, then they come up the steps. Usually Kayla's making Karis come up the steps. Okay. Why do, why do my children respond when I call them and other children in the neighborhood don't respond? It's because I didn't call those other children. The only people who came were the ones that I called. And this is what Paul is saying. If you notice, salvation is routinely in the Bible referred to as a call. We preach the gospel to everyone. But the people who respond are the ones who hear God calling them. Acts chapter 13, around verse 42 to 45. Paul and Silas are out preaching the gospel to people. There's a group of people standing around, and they preach the gospel. And the passage says some people responded, and some people walked away thinking this this was nonsense. And it says those who responded had been appointed to eternal life. Now, for me, I was, I was, I was completely anti-Calvinist. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that anybody can be saved. And, and so when I was in seminary, somebody hit me with that verse, and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have an answer for you. I still remember. We was like, it was about 4 o'clock in the morning. We were sitting there just debating theology. Now I ain't had no answer. I was like, oh, I'm going to the library tomorrow. And for like two months, I'm like digging, I'm digging. I'm like, I got nothing. Somebody at your door. salvation is a call. Paul says, you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. All things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew he also predestined. Now, it's interesting here, a lot of people will center on this word for new and, and talk about God's foreknowledge. God knows beforehand something that is going to take place. I told Antoine he loves uh, word studies. This is a good word study right here. That if you look up this word for fore, um, foreknowledge, it has very little to do with, with God's knowledge. It has everything to do with God's love. Those that God knew beforehand, you should be hearing with Adam and Eve, Adam knew Eve and conceived. Did Adam have knowledge of Eve and then she get pregnant? No. (laughs) Something happened. There was a relationship there. So the idea of this knowledge is not, necess- is not about head knowledge. It's about the relationship. Those that God had, he, he knew beforehand because he had selected them. He chose to put his love on them. Those he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Notice the order here, right? What, what uh, older theologians will call the auto salutis in Latin, right? Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. You follow my, my, this idea of election. Whom he called, these he also justified. He declares you not guilty. If he foreknew you, then he predestined you. If he predestines you, then he calls you. If he has called you, he has declared you not guilty. You are righteous. Not in the future. You're righteous right now. Even though you still sin, God sees you as righteous. And Paul takes it a step further and says, those that he has justified, he has glorified. Now, what's interesting to me, and it blows my mind here, is that all of these words are in the past tense. All of these words are in the past tense. Even the word glorified is in the past tense. It is as if God already sees you in heaven righteous and glorified, right? I mean, we will share his glory. We don't, I don't understand what that means. In some sense, we will in some way share God's glory. We will be glorified just like he is. But he sees it already as true in your life, even though you keep sinning and falling short of his glory. It's a done deal. That's why I said the resurrection itself is the assurance that we will get to heaven. Now, we wrestle. We wrestle because, like I said, like me, we think back in our minds and we just like, I just can't believe I was that stupid. <laughs> and, 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 and we beat ourselves up over things and, and, and we think that what we know about ourselves is enough to make God not love us. Because we know, if, if, like I said Friday, if I were to tell you all, if I were to tell you all half the stuff, just half, not, not all of it, if I were to tell you all half the stuff, then they're laughing because, you know, we grew up together. <laughs> and we used to work together, too, so she don't. All right. If I were to tell you all half the stuff, y'all would be like, I'm switching my membership. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know why we even at this church. Who gave this man a license? And we think that because of what we know about ourselves, and if I were to tell you all, y'all be like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. Y'all would be very scared to continue on your membership. But God's not like that. God sees you as perfected right now. And what I'm trying to get across to you is that God picked you, those of us who are saved, he has picked us before he even created the world. He knew every single thing you were going to say, everything you were going to do, all of your thoughts, 
He knew all of those things. Psalm 139. Before the words come off your lips, behold, he already knows them. He knew when I was in high school how bad my mouth was going to (laughs) be. He knew all of those things about me. And it did not stop him from picking me. And it did not stop him from picking you. So, all of these things, because of Jesus' resurrection, you have assurance. It is the final step in the process of all of the things that Paul just listed that God did. The, 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 the death, burial, and resurrection is the final thing in the process of God bringing you to himself so that if you come to Christ, you can have assurance and confidence that you're going to heaven. Why? Not because you do enough good deeds. The truth be told, none of us are ever going to be able to do enough good deeds to get into heaven. But because on that day, God is going to look at what his son did and say, not guilty. Now, Paul goes on to say this. I, I, I love this. I wish I was in an old Baptist church with these verses, you know, because, you know, I, I'd be like, ha, and we go, what shall we say then? Ha, if God is for us, ha. All right, you, 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 boy, that, this would be work. They'd be like, yeah, you know. Every time you hit a question, a question, right? Okay, but I'm just going to read it because I'm almost at my time, okay? Listen, it's all right. <laughs> Listen to what Paul says. Listen. Keep these things in mind. This is what we, these questions that Paul is asking here, these questions, these are the things that we have to keep saying to ourselves. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think of that. If God is for us, who can be against us? If the God of the universe who created all of these things, who has called you to himself, if he is for you, what does it matter what other people think about you? For that matter, what does it matter what you think about yourself? If he has called you righteous, no matter what you remember about yourself, you are righteous because God is for you. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, I think this is Paul making a reference back to uh, Romans chapter 5, right? And what Paul says that, um, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that, um, mm, get my thoughts. He says that when we were God's enemies, Christ still died for us. When you were his enemy, he died for you. But now, 
that you are one of his, how much more freely will he give you everything? Think of that. If when you hated God and you turned your back on him, he died for you. Now that you are his child, how much more will he do for you if he was willing to sacrifice himself for you when you were his enemy? All of us who are parents know that when your child comes to you and they, they ask you for anything, you, you, have, you generally have a desire to give it to them, right? I mean, whatever it is. You know, my kids, they, they come, my kids, they're strange. They, they just want everything. I mean, my kids was like four years old, and we go to a restaurant, and we're like, what do you want? I want shrimp. Like, what? I'm like, what four-year-old wants? You don't want no chicken nuggets? <laughs> it's like, my kids, my, I'm like, what y'all want to do? They're like, we want to go to Disney. I'm like, y'all got something expensive, something expensive taste. I'm like, y'all just want to go to a playground or something? But in, in my heart, I want to give them everything that they want. My pockets just don't work that way. <laughs> okay? but, but if I could, I would give them everything. He, Paul is saying the same thing, that if when you were God's enemy, he sent his son to die for you, now that you are his child, what will he withhold from you? That there's nothing. <laughs> At least it's in Romans. <laughs> Almost done. Almost done. He says, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's saying that if God has declared you not guilty, who can hold something against you? Who can hold something against you? Again, we're going back to the idea that people know things about you. People can accuse you of things. None of that matters. If God has justified you, who can bring a charge against you? The judge of the universe has said you are not guilty. He says, who is he who condemns, right? Who is the one who would sentence you to a penalty? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, is also risen, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. There's no accusation that could ever be presented that is going to make God think, I might have messed up. I don't know. Maybe I should send them to hell. <laughs> There's no accusation. Jesus died in your place. And not only has he died in our place, but it says he is risen and he is now seated at the right hand of his father and he's making intercession for us. So in essence, every time you blow it, Jesus is like, you know what, Lord? That's just Larry. You, you, you know how he is. <laughs> and like, give him another chance. Okay, He's going to need a lot more. He, he's interceding for us 
on our behalf to the Father, letting him know, you know what, Lord? Father, I paid for that. I, I, I know they're guilty, but I paid for that. You got to let them go free. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, Paul now here gives us a long list of things because in our minds, we oftentimes question if God really does love us. Some of us really do struggle with that question. And then Paul gives us a long list. You can put whatever list in here. You can put things that you've done. You can put what people think about you. You put all of those things in this verse. Paul says none of those things can ever separate you from the love of God. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, peril, sword, right? Skip down to verse 37. Yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels or principalities, powers, things present, nor things to come, height, death, any created thing. Think about that. There is nothing in all of God's creation that can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You have assurance of salvation. There is nothing that can ever stop God from loving you. Nothing you say, nothing you do, nothing. There is nothing that can ever get in your way. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross is the final proof, if you ever needed proof that God loves you, that was it. And that is why Easter is so important. That is why communion is so important. Because these things are meant to keep going through our minds, to keep bringing us back to the fact that he loved you so much he would die for you. And if he loves you that much, he's not going to let anything get in the way of bringing you to himself. Now, one of the things, not on my note that I just, that I would think about, right? People know I love the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is probably, other, other Romans and Ephesians are my favorite uh, books uh, of the Bible, right? Um, I, I love these uh, theological books of Paul. Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, love those books. One of the things Paul says in Ephesians is, right, he, he tells the church of Ephesus that he's praying for them. What does he say he's praying for? He says that he prays for them constantly that they would be able to come to understand the length and the depth and the breadth and the height of God's love. He says he prays that they would become rooted and grounded in God's love because that is the issue for us as Christians. We have been brought into a relationship that nothing you do can ever shake the relationship. Nothing you do can ever shake the relationship. You know, 
I, I think that that's why God gives us children, because the frustration of parenting <laughs> is God's like, yeah, that's what it's like. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, kids will do things, and it's like, I, I, I just saw you do that. I just saw you do it. And, and, and sometimes kids can recognize when we are, as, uh, as parents, are upset, and th- they're afraid to come to us. They're like, well, if I come, they're going to be mad at me. Or, and, and so, so they kind of stay away. Think about Adam and Eve, right, when God comes to the garden. It's like they, they just run away and hide. But Paul is trying to say, I'm praying that you all become rooted and grounded in his love so that you can understand how deep, and how wide, and how high, and how broad his love is. He's saying there is nothing that can separate you from him. And if we become rooted and grounded in his love, we recognize there is no nothing that should keep us from him. Even when we're in the middle of our sin, we can stop and come to God and not be afraid that he's going to do anything to us. He just wants us to come to him. His love for you is great. It is vast beyond all measure. He has poured out his love on you. And there's nothing that will ever change that fact. Every single time you think about the cross, you should think about how great his love is for you and know that that itself, the cross itself, is the assurance that you have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of that we've looked at in your word today. Lord, the truth be told, all of us, including myself, at times we have doubt because we can remember things about ourselves that we don't even like. Sometimes people will come back to us and remind us of things or make us feel guilty about things. And we have to constantly tell ourselves the gospel. Help us to realize that the gospel is not something that we believe on the first day we become a Christian. And then we put it up on the shelf and go about our business for other things. Help us to see that the gospel is the story that we keep telling ourselves every single day. We should be constantly telling ourselves about your grace and your mercy for us. We should be constantly telling ourselves about your great love for us. We should be constantly be reminding ourselves that death is not the end, that we will stand before you, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, holy and blameless before you in love. The gospel is important for us to remind ourselves of when we're at our lowest points in our lives. When all of us continue to sin and fail you, 
We often try to hide it from one another, but you know, and you still pursue us because as Paul, as John says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You will treat us as if we'd never even sinned. And it's all because of Christ. I pray, Lord, as we end our service today, that you would, by your spirit, pour reassurance in our hearts. For those of us who are struggling with the assurance of salvation, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that our relationship with you is rock solid. It can never be shaken, and we will stand before you glorified. For those of us who are struggling in sin and, and we feel that we should, should run and hide from you, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that there is nothing that can separate us. We can even come to you with our sin, knowing that you have already dealt with that. And you, by your spirit, in Romans chapter 6, you are able to, con to give us the grace and the strength to even overcome those sins. Lord, I pray that you would help us, as Paul says, he continued to go back to the gospel because we need to plumb the depths of all that you have done for us in Jesus. And we will spend all eternity continuing to understand the ramifications of what he did for us on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for your great grace, for your mercy on us. We thank you, Lord, for picking us, even though we don't deserve it. And we look forward to the day when we are able to see you face to face and praise you and glorify you for all that you have done. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.